I would continue to say after the killing of George Floyd to this day that more institutions need to listen to Black scholars who study race. So oftentimes when we see these diversity trainings, the colleges and universities are reaching out to people outside of the college that have not dedicated their academic and professional lives to studying issues of race. Welcome to AAUP Presents. I'm the host, Mariah Quinn, AAUP's digital organizer. My guest today is Lori Latrice Martin, an associate dean in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences and a professor in the Department of African and African American Studies at Louisiana State University. In the most recent edition of AAUP's Journal of Academic Freedom, Professor Martin wrote an article entitled Blackout, Backlash and Betrayal in the Academy and Beyond which examines the backlash many individuals and organizations, including professors, K-12 schools, and colleges and universities, have faced followed the so-called racial awakening that followed the horrific killing of George Floyd. The entire issue of JAF is devoted to the intersection of disinformation and academic freedom. You can find it on our website. Let's get right into my conversation with Professor Martin. In your article, you write that despite a perception that more members of the dominant racial group in the United States and other non-Black people have experienced a racial awakening in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, there continues to be, and I'm quoting you, efforts to silence conversation and actions related to combating anti-Blackness in America and the continued use of Black deaths to further the social, economic, and political progress of non-Black groups in the academy. We'll delve into the specifics of what you go into in your article, but can you explain this thesis a bit and walk us through the cyclical and what you call predictable nature of this type of awakening and backlash cycle? Sure. So I'll start just by saying that if we look historically at the history of race in America, we can see lots of examples where there have been what Derek Bell calls peaks of progress, where there have been moments where the country has felt like it was going to unite in terms of the various races, specifically between Black and white people who've been the most polarized historically with, with, with few exceptions. And so you think about periods like after the Civil War, where you know many people likely rejoiced because slavery had come to an end and you had all, this great, all these great promises during Reconstruction, and then only to have Reconstruction end in the late 1870s and then you know going back to business as usual and unfortunately we've seen this happen throughout American history so we fast forward to you know the mid 20th century with the modern civil rights movement and with the many victories there legislative victories like the civil rights act of 1964 voting rights act of 65 and the fair housing act of 68 and then only to have there be a backlash against uh so-called affirmative action. And so we saw that also, I argue in the article, after the killing of George Floyd, which was just horrific to say the least. And it occurred at a time when many people were forced to stay at home because of the global pandemic. And so the world watched the last nine minutes of George Floyd's life. And I think that that really touched a lot of people, especially individuals who had been on the sidelines, not involved in, in social justice issues, especially as it relates to race. And then it motivated people who have always been involved to try to see how they could seize the moment and how they could capitalize on the attention that was being devoted to racial issues in America. But times pass within a year or so, 
fewer people were talking about these tough conversations about race. And indeed, some state legislatures were trying to pass laws to prevent people from even talking about it in K through 12, as well as in colleges and universities. You know, you, you've just talked about this moment felt like a moment of profound fury and a real opportunity for change. But what I found compelling in your article is how you look at the response that colleges and universities and higher ed more broadly made in the aftermath of Mr. Floyd's killing. And you kind of describe it as performative and pro forma and definitely a peak of progress in the words of Derek Bell. Can you go through that? So after the killing of George Floyd, we saw a number of departments, we saw colleges, and we saw entire you know, universities issuing statements. You know, sometimes those statements came from a department chair, other times they came from a college dean, and many times they came from the president or the chancellor. And in these statements, oftentimes the leadership was talking about their values and denouncing the killing of George Floyd and calling for unity. For example, various colleges and universities were making commitments. They established diversity, equity, and inclusion committees. They, in some cases, also created diversity plans, encouraged colleges and departments to also create similar committees and plans to think about what practical steps the institutions could take to bring about change. There's lots of diversity trainings that happened across the country, diversity consultants brought from outside of the institution to talk about various issues like implicit bias and microaggressions are popular topics. There are a number of problems that I have seen in participating in some of these activities and hearing from other folks and reading what's been yeah. happening at other institutions. One, I would continue to say after the killing of George Floyd to this day that more institu institutions need to listen to Black scholars who study race. So oftentimes when we see these diversity trainings, the colleges and universities are reaching to, out to people outside of the college that have not dedicated their academic and professional lives to studying issues of race. And especially in Research One institutions where the scholars are creating the knowledge that other folks are going to use, it's really, it's really sad to see that more institutions were not relying on the assets in their own colleges. So for example, you know, if there's a, a hurricane coming and they want to have an expert who deals in that area, they're going to find someone on campus that specializes in that. They're not going to bring the local meteorologist onto campus to talk about, you know, these weather issues. And so I would argue that institutions should have and continue to listen to Black scholars who do work about race. And then I also make the point in the article that Sometimes the, there's a one-size-fits-all element to the diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings that take place or discussions that take place. And they're pretty generic and oftentimes may not even talk about anti-Black deaths. You know, in the case of the killing of George Floyd, it's likely that a lot of people did use that as, you know, a talking point. But for the most part, the, the, the main material in these diversity, equity, inclusion trainings are, are oftentimes pretty generic and they don't necessarily benefit historically disadvantaged groups. They seem to be tailored primarily towards members of the dominant group who may need some more assistance in understanding the historical marginalization of various groups. And so what ends up happening 
you know, I, I argue is that anti-Blackness gets lost from the conversation. And even with the hirings that some folks have done in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, like even in some sports organizations, it's not necessarily Black men who have been disproportionately affected by the these killings by law enforcement and ordinary citizens, but they're oftentimes women from various groups, for example, that are getting these positions. So even though Black deaths oftentimes spark conversations and movements and actions to try to bring about greater equity, it oftentimes doesn't benefit the very group that helped to, you know, serve as a catalyst for change. And in terms, you you know, when you're talking about the, the diversity, equity, equity and inclusion approach that many institutions took, you describe it as kind of checking boxes and not about real change and some of the things you already mentioned. Have you seen institutions do it well? unaware of any particular model that works well, that there's there are metrics to show that there has been meaningful change. And I think that that's a really important question because we have to think about how do we define, you know, success and how do we define change or progress. So for some institutions, they may do a cluster hire and increase the number of the diversity within their departments, for example. And yet the folks who were there before the cluster hire may be as miserable today as they were 10 or 15 years ago. And so while we can say, oh, well, we've made X number of hires, what is the quality of the experience for faculty, for students and for staff? And so I think it's it's challenging to measure, but in general, I have not, and I can't say that I've looked at every diversity, equity, inclusion program that's out there. But for the ones that I'm familiar with, that I've attended, that I've read about, they tend to not focus on anti-Blackness and they don't necessarily lead to sustainable, transformative change. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that you talk about in the article that happened in the aftermath were, you know, a surge of donations to historically Black colleges and universities but in a way that you describe as short-lived and non-transformational. Was that predictable in your view? I'm very happy to see that that individuals and organizations are investing in HBCUs and other Black institutions, and I'm not in the business of telling people how to spend their money. But what I will say is that we can look back historically, and I'll just go back to, for example, with the NFL and after Colin Kaepernick's protests in 2016, and you know the controversies related to that, and you know at, at one point I believe the NFL may have donated to the United Negro College Fund, or there are some some organizations that are seen as historically safe Black social justice institutions. And so whenever there is a over-racial upheaval, you'll find that people, and especially big organizations, will go to these organizations and provide support. So that could be a HBCU, could be the NAACP, for example. But, I mean, there are other places where those resources could go. There are lots of grassroots efforts where people have been working to try to address a host of racial inequities and other social justice issues that could benefit from some support. There are Black studies programs at predominantly white institutions that are under-resourced that could benefit from the support. So, I mean, sadly, there's enough need to go around. And so when some larger organizations that are oftentimes led by members of the dominant group prefer to give to certain groups, it's like they're signaling that they want people to know that, you know, 
they care about racial issues. And again, I'm sure those resources go to good use and can bring about change. But again, there are other ways to support racial justice issues. And as part of the backlash, you know, in this peaks of progress model, we see a huge push from the right around critical race theory. And as you've already kind of touched on a fade out of public and uncomfortable conversations about race. Can you talk a little bit more about how this plays out in higher ed in particular? Yeah, so in the in the popular press, and I would argue probably in some departments and colleges and universities, there's a lack of understanding about what critical race theory is and is not. It has come to be used as a term, a catch-all term for anything dealing with issues related to race relations historically and in contemporary times, especially as it relates to Black people and white people in America. And actually, critical race theory is more of an area of study that developed as a critique to education and to legal studies. And so it, it's not the catch-all term that it has been used of lately and for various political reasons. And what's frightening is that in some states like Florida, there are laws that are considered or limit people's ability to do what they've been trained to do. So if you are a scholar who studies race, there are limits, efforts to limit your ability to talk about that. And then, especially if you're at a public institution, that can place the funding from the state to your institution at risk. And so while we talk about academic freedom, it is, of course, not absolute, but there have always been constraints on the academic freedom of some folks because of the kind of work that they do and also because of, of who they are. And so it's really important that institutions demonstrate a lot of courage and, you know, stand up to folks who don't fully understand what critical race theory is and is not. And to demonstrate the importance of us understanding our history, the good and the bad, and thinking about ways that we can move forward. Can you talk about how the aftermath of the protests affected scholarship around Black studies programs and challenges to white supremacy at the institutional level and more broadly in higher education? You'll find that in many places, including in the in the South, in the U.S., that some institutions did not have Black studies programs. Some of them might be called Africana studies or African, African-American studies. I'm just going to use the term Black studies to describe them all. Either they didn't have programs prior to the killing of George Floyd, or they had programs that were not departments. And the difference, as many of you may know, between you know programs and departments, among others, is that departments are oftentimes larger. They have greater resources, more faculty. And there's also, some would argue, more prestige in having a department as opposed to having a program. So in some cases, you had programs that were existing for decades that wanted to be departments, but for whatever reason would not be promoted to a department. Some might argue that you just don't have the resources to do it or the timing is not right, or perhaps there were concerns that other programs would want to become departments. And so you had this ongoing struggle at many colleges and universities in the case of programs wanting to be promoted to departments and not having much success. And then after the killing of George Floyd and when universities and colleges are having these tough conversations, suddenly the programs are promoted to departments and, you know, this is communicated to the public as a show of, yes, we get it, we understand 
Meanwhile, the folks that have been on the, these campuses for decades are wondering why now when, you know, they've been calling for this for a very long time. But nevertheless, you, we saw a lot of programs become departments, but we didn't necessarily see that each of those departments were funded in a way that they could become successful. And so now that maybe some individuals in positions of power are not as focused on racial justice issues, they're not as willing to release resources that might help these departments be successful. And so the faculty and staff and students are are finding that they're fighting again for just the basic things that they need to be successful. And then, of course, you still have the issue of scholars who are already at these institutions who are concerned about the the labor that they perform that may not show up in an annual report or on their CV who felt who have felt that they are underpaid and and just stretched beyond what they should be stretched and to find that you know suddenly their pictures are all over the website or in buildings to show the diversity yet they don't feel that they are actually valued by their institution And then in the article, I also talk about some of the challenges that Black administrators, not that there are many Black administrators at institutions, especially at at certain levels, but that what they face in terms of not being treated with the same level of respect as their white counterparts, and how do we deal with those particular challenges. And so those are among some of the issues that I raise in the article as it relates to, you know, what what are the experiences like for Black faculty and Black administrators and Black staffers in the post-George Floyd era. And you talk about what you call a George Floyd hire. Can you talk about what that is and how their experiences demonstrate a betrayal of supposed commitments made by colleges and universities as part of their commitment to racial justice and the movement for Black lives? Yeah, so I came up with that term thinking about individuals who were hired in DEI-related and following the killing of George Floyd, as well as the faculty positions. And I came up with that term because I, I sincerely believe that some of these positions would not have existed without the killing of George Floyd. So these hires are forever, I argue, tied to that, that fateful day on May 25th, 2020. And so while these various positions demonstrated, even if it was just symbolically, that there was a willingness to address diversity, equity, and inclusion at various institutions, that soon after these folks were in these positions, it was really unclear exactly what their charge was. Again, some institutions had created roadmaps to diversity and other strategic plans that suddenly no one could find or were no longer in effect. And so thinking about, you know, what is the future for these folks who were hired at a time of so-called racial reckoning and now, you know, dealing with the, in the way that it's functioned historically in a contemporary time. And you laid out some clear steps that higher ed institutions could take to actually have a profound impact on addressing racial wrongs and stopping the inevitable moving back to business as usual. Let's go through them and I'll just have you tell us more about each one if you would. You've touched on this first one a bit. Listen to Black scholars. Can you want to just go a little more into that again? 
Yes. So again, I mean, today are Black scholars and colleges and universities across the campus in in the STEM fields, humanities and the social sciences. I'm talking specifically about Black scholars who have been focused on studying race. And so when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, especially, um, and this would vary depending on where you are, I would argue, in the in the region. In the South, I think that primarily while there is growing diversity and in the Southeast in particular, oftentimes the discussions are about, you know, race as it relates to Black and, and white people, but should include other groups. But I think that it's really important to listen to the experts on campus that they have devoted their lives to studying issues of race. And again, especially at institutions that pride themselves on creating knowledge that's used by other institutions and by the larger public, that that's something that colleges and universities should really do more. And that, again, when we talk about other fields, it would be unimaginable for someone to, you know, go outside of the campus to look for an expert. They would immediately go to the folks on their campus and and Black scholars should receive that same level of respect. And another point you mentioned is providing resources. What more would you add to that? So, yeah, and again, this is not reflective of in, of an individual institution, but there are consortiums of Black Studies chairs and directors, for example, in different regions. And in, you know, in their conversations, they talk about the challenges that they face in being under-resourced. And while there's, of course, variations and some institutions are more resourced than others, across the board, it's clear that, you know, there's a need for an influx of investment. And and to be fair, you know, there are challenges and needs across colleges and universities. I'm sure that you would be hard pressed to find any department or program that won't say that they could use more resources. But if we look historically at Black Studies programs, for example, some of these programs haven't seen an increase in their in their budgets in, in more than, you know, a generation. And that's just should not be the case. So you know, the, you know, there's a saying that I'm sure you've heard that, you know, show me where you spend your money or your time and I'll show you what you really care about. And so you just have to think about, you know, what what are some creative ways to provide Black Studies programs with and Black scholars with the resources that they need to be successful? And another point you raise and a clear step for moving forward is do not minimize the significance of race. You can you talk a bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so I find it so interesting that with all the evidence we have of ongoing racial disparities and a host of issues, that the solution for addressing many of those ongoing racial disparities is to create programs and policies that are race neutral or they're universal. And so they're going to benefit everyone. So for example, to use an illustration from the world of wealth, there was a time where where some people were proposing issuing baby bonds to every baby who was born in the U.S. at a, you know, up and, and then hold on to it until they were 18 years old. And then the individual could use it to go to school, start a business, buy a home and so forth. And that was, you know, set forth as a way to deal with racial disparities in wealth. Well, again, it's not a race specific program. It's not just for black people or it's not just for folks with a particular income level, but it's a universal program. And so I'm 
saying the same thing that when we think about issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, about making sure that people feel a sense of belonging, that they feel valued, that they feel welcomed in their space, that is important not to just lump everyone together and talk about, you know, well, we all have differences. Some people are tall, some people are short. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we sometimes hear in these diversity trains, and we don't want to equate differences in height, for example, or whether you're bald or not with issues of related to anti-Black racism. Mm -hmm. And another point you make is, you know, continue the fight. There's always people who are fighting in the valleys and then the more people come on when there's the peak, but how, how is that fight going and how do you see it going, going forward? You know, it's it's very it's very stressful physically and mentally and in any other way we could think about. So it's very challenging to have a commitment to try to bring about change and a change that that you know is necessary. But to receive pushback and backlash is very frustrating. <clears throat> but again, and and um, we talked about racial realism a little bit before. And some people find that concept to be very pessimistic. You know, lots of folks want to think that, you know, that there's changes possible. But what Derek Bell is basically trying to do is to help people not feel disappointed when there's a peak of progress followed by backlash, but to still be encouraged that they should. It's worth the sacrifice. Even though it's not easy, it's always right to do the right thing. And so I think that's what what's powerful about what Derek Bell has to offer and what keeps folks going. And if you're really committed to issues related to race and other social justice matters. You you expect this. You know that there are going to be times when people are focused on your particular issue and there are going to be other times when they're focused on something else. And so you just have to be ready so that when folks who have the luxury and the privilege of not thinking about race every day, every second of their life, when they decide to pay attention, then perhaps you can help to move the, the needle of justice forward. How do you suggest people interact with politics in this country and, you know, keep that fight and keep that hope alive in this system that we have? I think it's important for people to remember that civic engagement doesn't end on Election Day. So we hear a lot, you know, a lot of folks trying to encourage folks to go to the polls on election, to the election Day, whether it's a mid-year election like we just had or a presidential election or local elections, which are important. But it's really it's really significant that we are actively engaged on a daily basis, whatever that looks like. There are lots of different ways to be engaged, but to continue to speak truth to power wherever you are to try to make the, the world a better place than, than we inherited it. And, and, and it's challenging because, you know, we're oftentimes... Um, sent messages about our two-party system and some folks just want to be all on one side or the other. When there's room for for critical analysis on both sides of the aisle and need to, again, have not only those tough conversations, but to hold folks accountable, the folks that you vote for, the folks that you don't vote for, who nevertheless are in positions of power. So, you know, civic engagement is everyone's responsibility and it's not something that ends on election day, but it's something that we should all be committed to every day. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thanks again to Lori for joining us on the show. 
You can find her article linked in the show notes and on our website at aaup.org backslash JAF. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform to get notified when we release new episodes. I'm Mariah Quinn, AAUP's digital organizer. Thanks for listening to this episode of AAUP Presents.